Well, hello. Good to see you. If you're on our stream, we're so glad you're here too. We're glad that you get to be part of us in this way. Why don't you just say hi to one another? Just hit that like button. We'll have like an explosion of likes on the stream. So go ahead and do that now. Uh, we're glad you're here as you join us with those who are in the room. I know you just stood, but uh, if you would, would you stand one more time? Put, put those masks on. We're going to come before the text this morning. One of the things that I do is uh, I have you stand. It's sort of a distinguish. It, it distinguishes my words from God's. We stand for God's. You can sit for mine. Uh, but it also helps us recommit ourselves. This is an ancient prayer called Shema that we say before we read the text. And it's just a way to remind us to just uh, lean into God's words. We're hearing the very words from God here. And it's an invitation to say, God, we want to we hear from you uh, today. Lots going on in the world. So we're refocusing. We're recommitting. We're saying this prayer together to help us uh, focus in, laser in on what you have today. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We're in 2 Samuel 9. We've been in a series on the life of David. We haven't been able to hit every single verse of David's life. It's a, a whole book and a half worth. But we've invited you to read along with us in a reading plan as we've highlighted different stories uh, from his life. So today we're going to be in 2 Samuel 9. And this is the very word of the Lord. This is what it says. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered, uh, answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Emilio, in Lobadar. So King David had him brought from Lobadar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Methabosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's households were servants of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because why? What? He ate at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So he always ate at the king's 
table. You see, there's something about the table, isn't there? There's something about the table. If you think of your own table in your own house, there's something special that happens around that place. I remember Pastor Milo telling me a story of when they were building their new addition on their home. And there was really like a kitchen and kind of a dining living room area. It was going to be kind of the center of their home. And he said one of the things for his wife, Erin, one of the things that was very important was that the table be in the middle of the action. She didn't want the kitchen to be one place and then the, the table, the dining room table, would be somewhere else. She wanted it right in the very center, right in the very heart of their family because she understood that there's just something about the table. My own family, we actually did this. When we moved in, there was a big wall that blocked and separated our kitchen from that eating area, that place where all the action had. So we literally knocked a wall down to make sure that something happened in there. there there's something about the table, right, that, that you come and you, you're part of. And that there's the, the movement, the rhythm, the action, the lifeblood of your family revolves around this very spa sacred space. Now, in our family, as you can see, the table doesn't always feel very sacred, right? There are burps and standing on chairs, climbing on chairs for one, uh, one of our little ones. Uh, there's just, we, there's, there's please to please finish your vegetables, right? It doesn't always feel very sacred. But there's just something, right, about the table. Now, there's rules in our household about the table. My children are not following them at the moment. So, uh, but generally speaking, there are rules uh, around the table, like don't crawl on the table. That's usually one of them. Um, but why do we have these rules? Think about it. We have rules for our table that don't apply anywhere else in our household, right? One of them, maybe you had this growing up, is that you couldn't just get down from the table. You had to be excused. Right? You had to be excused from the table. Why is that? We don't have that rule really for anything else, but we do have that rule when we sit around the table because in, intrinsically we understand that something sacred is happening here and you just can't get down haphazardly. Again, it doesn't feel very sacred in that moment, but there's just something about the table, isn't there? That we actually create rules to govern the table. You can't just get down. There's something beautiful and wonderful. Maybe you had that as a kid, that you couldn't get down from the table. You can't just leave haphazardly. There's something that has to be agreed upon to say, this is the end of it. My wife, when she was growing up, she had rules for her table. And one of the rules was Molly's not allowed to sing at the table. That was actually one of their true family rules because she was this happy-go-lucky girl and she would sing and, and just belt it out from the top of her lungs and her family, it drove them crazy. And they said, all right, there's got to be one space we can sit around and there's no singing at the dinner table. So Molly, no singing at the dinner table. But, but there was another one that I actually really liked. And for her growing up, the rule was is that you couldn't leave the table until somebody else was also ready to leave the table too. You, you couldn't have just one person kind of show up, cram all their food in their mouth and say, I'm done, can I go to my room? No, 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 there's something special that's happening here. And so you can't get down until somebody else is ready too. Then there's sort of this agreed upon way in which we conclude the meal. 
we have these rules because we believe and understand the sense that the table creates things like belonging. Right? There's this belonging. There's a sense of belonging a table creates. The table, it creates a sense of acceptance, that you're invited to come be around the table. There's like this sense of acceptance. In the first century, uh, this was actually true, that eating with other people around a table was actually a pretty significant social experience. It was, you were communicating to that person and the world around you that we were in relationship, that there was an association and a connection here uh, that went just beyond eating. This is why Jesus gets in trouble when he eats with the sinner's and tax collectors. He's saying something actually very specific about his association and his acceptance of those on the outside, that he would dine and sit around a table with them. The table creates a sense of belonging. It, it creates a sense of acceptance. And I also think it creates a sense of grace. Because when you think about it, there's only one person or one entity that really provides for the things around the table— and then everybody else is invited just to come and receive, right? If you have someone over, they come around your table, and you have provided something for them, and they come and they receive. Molly and I are, are, are the ones that provide for the things around the table, and then we just invite our children to come and receive. You see, the table, it creates a sense of belonging, and it creates the sense of acceptance, and it creates this sense of grace. Now, like most of you, our family doesn't sit around the table every single meal. Sometimes there's gymnastics to get to or delays, or we're just simply tired and we need a, a dinner and movie night, right? So we understand we don't always sit uh, around the table, but when we do, man, there's just something about the table. There's just something about it. Now, in our story, an unlikely character is invited to the table. And it starts, the story starts like this. In verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but let me take you back and remind you of where we've been in our story thus far. You see, most of what we've been reading in First and Second Samuel uh, is predicated on this war that's being fought between the line of Saul and the line of David, and pretty much since the start. In fact, Second Samuel 3, a few chapters earlier, they kind of summarize it in a good way. I like this. It's very cut and dry. It says this, there was a war between Saul and David, right? There's this war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and it lasted a long time. Right? I love just like the clearness of that. Like, this went on for a while, guys. Like, it's just been going on for a really long time. There's this war. Because in the early days, Saul actually loved David. But as David's popularity grew, Saul goes literally insanely jealous of it. And he tries to kill David for basically the entire second half of 1 Samuel. Right? There's this rivalry, this war that's developed between these two houses. But during this time, David befriends Saul's son, Jonathan. And we read about this story in, in 1 Samuel 18. It says this, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He becomes one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. For that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Now this term, one in spirit, literally in the Hebrew it reads, was knit together. These two lives were knit together. And this was actually a euphemism for a blood covenant. Pastor Milo actually talked about this a few weeks ago, that there was some sort of blood involved, uh, sort of like if you remember as kids, and you do, you're like a blood brother with someone, right? You have a little cut, and you kind of mix the blood. It's a little gross, right? You mix it together, and now we're like somehow like deeply connected. There's something about the lifeblood uh, of, of, of that, that that like brings it together. And it says that a covenant was made. The word, the literally they use the word covenant. Now back in those days, you never made a covenant, you cut a covenant. You cut a covenant, and it always involved blood. There was something about the, the shedding of blood that really bound two people together. And so when it says becomes one in spirit, they, they cut a covenant. These two cut a covenant together. There was some sort of blood involved with this. And then we get a little more detail about this covenant a few chapters later. When Jonathan's talking to David, Jonathan sees the writing on the wall. He knows that David will become king of Israel. And because he knows David's going to be king of Israel, he knows his family, his line, right? It's, it's sort of like uh, kind of Romeo and Juliet, but with two guys instead, right? It's like one family and one family we war together, and yet we're friends kind of underneath this thing. He knows his line's done. He knows that God is with David. David is going to be king. And if David becomes king, his family are the natural enemies to David. His family are the natural enemies to David. So he knows that his family is by and large uh, gonna gots to go. And I don't mean like just walk away. They're gonna, they're, they're gonna be gone. And so what does Jonathan do? He says this. He ta he's talking to David. He says, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He's talking about his own family. Because his family is going to be the enemies of David. And so he says, when this is all done, when God has established you as a king, and all your, the natural enemies, which he knows as his father and his brothers, when all those enemies are gone, if there's anyone left in my family, will you show them kindness? And David agrees. And eventually, God does cut off David's enemy because Saul had four heirs, four sons, who would be David's primary rivals to the throne. It makes sense. You've got one line. You've got four brothers. They're the next of kin. They're the next in line to be king. And yet a new line, a new kingly line is coming. And so it's those sons that are going to be the, the, the natural enemies, the natural rivals for David to establish his kingdom, a, a different line. Three of these sons, along with Saul, die at the end of 1 Samuel. There's finally a battle. Uh, three of his sons, including Jonathan, is with Saul, and they, they fall in that battle. So there's only one brother left. We've got one brother who then in the second part, in the early part of 2 Samuel, he is crowned king because Saul is dead. All the brothers are dead. So naturally he thinks he's next in line. He ought to be king. So he is crowned king in one part of Israel. David is king in another. And now we get this war this kind of final battle to see who's truly going to be king over all of, his, uh, all, of all of Israel. It's David versus Ishbosheth, And they fight, and finally in chapter 4 of, our, of, our, uh, of, of 2 Samuel, in, in chapter 4, David defeats Ishbosheth, the final brother, the final kind of rival, uh, number one candidate to uh, take on David. He beats him in chapter 4. 
So that by chapter 7, in the very first verse of chapter 7, it reads, David was settled in his place, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. What Jonathan knew was coming does come true. Jonathan said it. He said, listen, you're gonna, God's going to cut off all these enemies from you. And now it's happened. 2 Samuel 7, David has settled in his place now, and the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies. Chapter 8, the chapter right before us, right? Chapter 8 then is just basically a, a, a bragging chapter. Here's all the people that David beat. Here's everything that's going on. And it's kind of summarized in this last verse. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all the people. He's won. The war is over, and he has won. And now we get here to chapter 9. And David now remembers that blood covenant he made with Jonathan to show kindness to anyone left in his family. Now, the word kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. It's got a little guttle at the beginning. It's a good, like, a hakalugi kind of a thing, a chesed, right? That's the word kindness here. He wants to show chesed to anyone in Jonathan's Line. Now, at its root, the word chesed means an eager desire by which one is led. An eager desire by which then you are led into action. So chesed is that deep thing inside of you that, that motivates you and motivates your actions in one way or another. This word is actually neutral, meaning it's not necessarily positive or it's not necessarily negative. It's just whatever's inside that is going to be led. It can be kind, or it can be shame and condemnation. You can be led by an eager desire for love, mercy, and kindness, or you can be led by an eager desire for shame, disgrace, and condemnation. Chesed inherits both understandings. Let me give you an example. In Proverbs, Proverbs 14, it uses this word chesed several times, but both in one in a positive way and in a negative way. In Proverbs 14, 22, it says, do not, th do not those who plot evil go astray, but those who plan what is good, chesed, but those who plan what is good show love and faithfulness. That's exactly the word you need, right? Whoever plans good, whatever that eager desire is in your heart, and if it's good— then what's going what's to show? Love and faithfulness. Chesed is good, so I'm going to show love and faithfulness. Twelve verses later, just twelve verses later, chesed is used again, but now it's warning you against the negative. It's showing you what can happen with chesed if you live in, under mercy and grace and love, and it also shows you what chesed can, ha what can happen if you live on the other side of it. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Sin, chesed. It's another, it's that thing. So if you have sin, if you have ugliness, if you have uh, uh, condemnation and shame in you, it's going to lead to condemnation elsewhere. So chesed, deep in its root, is actually a question. What this word asks you is what side are you going to live on? What is that eager desire in your heart? Because it's going to show itself. It's going to lead you in one way or another, at its root. This word is a question. What side are you living into? It's the question Proverbs asks, and it's the question that is asked here. What side of chesed will you live into? So David, being led by good, being led by a positive form of chesed, wanting to honor for the sake of the Lord, wanting to honor, he begins to look for those that he can show his kindness to. This is why the word here 
is to find kindness. Because his heart is good. And so he wants to show kindness for the sake of Jonathan. And with that, he begins to search. But who's left? Jonathan's father, Saul, is dead. All his brothers are dead. And so when he asks this in the very first verse of our story today, he's really asking the question, is there anyone left? Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for, for Jonathan's sake? Enter Mephibosheth. We pick up Mephibosheth's story actually five chapters earlier in, in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it reads this. This is his backstory. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son, a single son, one son before he dies, who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So we get a little backstory to this guy. He's five years old at the time. His, son, his father and his grandfather have died. The nurse knows that he's in trouble. She scoops him up to flee. And in her hurrying, I don't know if she dropped him or he tripped or something happened, and he fell. He fell. So he's crippled by a fall. And maybe uh, appropriately, his name means out of my mouth comes shame. That's what his name means. Out of my mouth comes shame. You see, he's living on one side of chesed. That's his story since he was a little boy. He's living on one side of chesed. My, out of my mouth comes shame. And we're told he's, lived in, he's living in Lobadar, which literally means nowhere. I love that. He lives Lobadar. He lives nowhere. No fields. No, nothing. There's, there's no, nothing to describe about this guy. He's living nowhere. Now, I think this speaks to his identity, right? The shame-filled cripple living nowhere. That makes sense in the story. But I also think it sort of speaks to his situation, too. Because when you think about it, when a newly kingly family is established, like we talked about, what do you tend to do to the old one? you wipe them out, right? When a new king is established, as sort of an insurance policy, you're going to make sure everyone on that other end of the line isn't going to come back with revenge someday to get you. Do we have any Princess Bride fans in the room? We got any Princess Bride fans in the room? Right? What is the famous line? My name is Inigo Montoyo. You killed my father. Prepare to die, right? That's it. Like, that's the whole story, right? That someone dies right? And now the son, he grows up, he learns of sword fighting with this insatiable thirst for revenge. And the whole movie, his whole character arc is built around him having this battle because he's going to avenge his father and take back what is his. Well, if you're a new king, you don't want that guy showing up at your doorstep one day, right? So what do you do? You wipe them all out early. Right? You'll wipe them all out early so that I've got no rivals, no more enemies. This guy's not going to show up on my front door someday. Now think about it. Saul is dead. And all his sons are dead. 
Mephibosheth is the single surviving grandson. He has the final legitimate claim to the throne. He is the last potential enemy of David. Uh, imagine it for a sec, if you would. Would you just close your eyes? Just imagine this for a second. You're a cripple, living in nowhere, disgraced and in hiding because of what your grandfather did. And then one day you hear it. In the distance, you see the dust scattering as the band moves closer and closer. You see the chariots and the horses, and you know this isn't any ordinary group. This is the king's band. Fear sets in. You know the king wouldn't come all the way out here to nowhere for nothing. This business is about you. You've been found. You've been found. You may try to hide, but there isn't anywhere you, he won't go. There isn't anywhere he won't find you. You try to squeeze in any dark place you can find. You hear the footsteps drawing near until they are standing over you, and you hear a voice say, the king wants to see you. Okay. Now the story moves to him being ushered into the king's presence. And what he does, he's ushered in, and he bows right away, right down on the floor. I imagine he lays prostrate right on the floor because he knows the gravity of the situation. It's judgment day for this man. And then he hears the king call his name, Mephibosheth. And then to his utter amazement, first words out of the king's mouth are, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will show you kindness. You've lived on the wrong side of Hesed for long enough. I will take your shame and disgrace and replace it with love and mercy, and you will always eat my table. You will always eat at my table. Belonging, acceptance, grace. In his utter shock, he asked the question, the question, what is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me? That's the question, isn't it? Why would you do this? What is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me? And the answer is, friends, it's really not about him, is it? It had nothing to do with him. He had done nothing to deserve or earn this. He was actually an enemy of the king. He was actually an enemy of the king, but for the sake of another, for your father, Jonathan, because of a covenant cut in blood, you will always eat at my table. It had nothing to do with you. You didn't do anything to deserve it. But because of the sake of somebody else that went before you, cut with his blood, you will, you will be invited to the table. Have we started putting the pieces together yet? Yeah, yeah. Because that story will be told again. That story has been told again. 
right? Because that's your story. And it's my story. I'd like to invite the band up as we just close and reflect on that a little bit. Because we have had a fall, haven't we? The fall has crippled us. We're lame. We limp. We crawl. Because we've had a fall. And out of our mouth comes shame. Because we've lived on one side of chesed for so long that we don't know any other way. We're from nowhere. Insignificant specks in this universe. And then the king begins his search. And there isn't anywhere you can go. There isn't any place you can go where he won't find you. He'll leave the 99 to find you. And when he does, he says to you, don't be afraid. And then he calls you by name. Did you know that you actually have a name that you don't know yet, but God has for you? You have a name. There's this part in the last book of the Bible by, by, by a man by the name of John. He gets this vision from Jesus of what it's going to look like when God finally puts this all back together, when, it, when the culmination of all of this stuff happens. And in one part of it, he sees this. He sees, and it, it addresses the victorious, the ones of us who've accepted the invitation of this king. And so he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some the hidden manna, and then also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. You have a name. Isn't that amazing? It's so fascinating. God has a name picked out for you that only you and he will know. And when you stand before judgment day, he will tell you, he will call you by this name. A name only known to you and him. He will call you by name. He will say, you have lived on the wrong side of chesed for long enough, and I will take your shame and replace it with belonging and acceptance and grace, and then he will invite you to the table. Later on in this story, kind of at the end, when really the culmination, we're getting to the good stuff now, and we read at the end of Revelations, the, the banquet, the feast, and it says this, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And then the angel said to me, write this. Hey, John, let everyone know this. Blessed is the one who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added these words. These are the true words of God. You see, you have an invitation to the table. And then we will ask the question. In utter shock, we'll ask it the question, what is your servant that you notice a dead dog like me? And the answer is the same. It's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. You have done nothing to deserve or earn this. Actually, you were an enemy to the king but for the sake of another. Because of a covenant cut in blood, you will always eat at my table as sons and daughters. 
not because of anything you've done, but somebody else came before you and with his blood was cut a covenant so that the kindness of the Lord will be brought before you and the invitation to the table will come. Because there's just something about the table. There's just something about the table. That's why we come around this table. And I've missed this. We haven't been able to do this with COVID, but I've missed this, being able to stand around the table. Because what the table does is it reminds us of a few things. What, what this, this seemingly insignificant to the outside world, the seemingly insignificant little ceremony that we do, actually reminds us of great truths about our story. Because our story is that we are dead dog cripples living in nowhere. And then the king finds us and calls us by name and invites us to the table. Not because of anything we've done, but for the covenant cut with the blood of another so that kindness can be shown to me. That's the story. And that's what this table does. So the table reminds us for the sake of Jesus Christ, who cut a new covenant by his blood, broken body and all, we are shown kindness. So if you would, if you grab that communion cup, let's begin to celebrate that together. Let's be able to recognize that together. So pull off that top film. You'll find a little wafer there. We do this to remember of the one who came before, who cut a covenant, his blood, so that we might experience the kindness of God. And he took bread, gave thanks for it, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. We do this for another reason, too. We do this to remind ourselves of another thing. And that is the supper, the table that is coming. We sit around this table, and this is a good table. There's a beautiful thing that's happening in these moments, but it is but a foretaste and a shadow and a reminder of the great banqueting table that is to come. Do you know, as Jesus was instituting this very supper, he at one point says, I'm not going to do this again. I'm, I'm not going to drink of, the, of, of, of the, the fruit of the vine again until we all do it together in God's kingdom. I'm going to wait because you belong here. So when we come around the table, we remember that day. And man, what a day it's going to be. And friends, for you, if you've never accepted that invitation to the table, if you've never gone down into that water and said, I am going to be a part of this banqueting feast. I want to accept the one who with his blood invited me to it. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Belonging, acceptance, grace. So if you'll take that cup, let's do that together. Those of us who have been invited, grab that film. Then he took the cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom.
Let's remember that day now. Let's pray, God. We don't deserve this. We were dead dogs living nowhere, crippled from a fall. Out of our mouth spoke shame, and then you took us. You found us. Wherever we were, whatever nowhere place we were hiding, you found us, and you brought us in, and you called us by name. As a son and as a daughter. So that we might eat around your table forever. Thank you, Jesus.